Many would say that Democrats in Congress have been too timid, haven't fought back enough. Well, today we'll look at what a defiant Democratic Party looks like. I'm Bert Cohen, and with your help, we are keeping democracy alive. Check for pulse. Stand clear. Push to shock. America's fascists are those people who think Wall Street comes first and the American people come second. It undermines faith in our government. There's a huge gap between public opinion and public policy that people don't feel that they can do very much. For many years, national polls have shown that a solid majority of Americans strongly favor Democrats on policy issues. So why isn't the country acting on those widely shared values? Of course, gerrymandering of congressional districts is a huge hurdle. But there's also the fact that the identity of the Democratic Party is exceptionally nebulous. Why is that and what can be done about it? That's what we're going to talk about today. Since the takeover of the National Party by the Clinton faction in the 1990s, people at the top of the DNC power structure routinely kowtow to big money funders. The more traditional Democrats, liberal and labor, were shunted aside uh, so as to make it more attractive for Wall Street types and exceptionally wealthy Americans. So if the party lacks definition, what is there to communicate, to sell to the average American? Back in the 1980s, when I ran for the Democratic nomination for Congress, I used to say, if people know what Republicans stand for, but they don't know what we stand for, we'll lose every time. I note that the eventual nominee back then was more of a centrist, and he did not win the seat. In the ensuing years, what used to be considered the vital center, where Eisenhower was domestically, is today seen as the left, or even to some, the far left. The point is the Republicans have shifted farther to the right than any of us could have imagined just a few years ago. And Democrats? In the determination to be a big tent, we have lost a clear identity and lost a lot of races we could possibly have won. Our guest today, Eleanor Egan, is co-author of an essay titled What a Defiant Democratic Party Looks Like, subtitled Their Leader's Timidity Has Failed to Limit Republican Extremism. So it will cost them nothing to fight tooth and nail against McConnell's latest plot. Back in 2016, when the Democratic nominee had a clear uh, personal identity, positions on the issues, uh, her political identity was unclear, and voters decided, what's to lose by trying someone new? They, well, now they know what has been lost. Boy, do we ever. So today, a question for Democrats is, what's to lose to fight tooth and nail against Republican extremism? Eleanor Egan is a research assistant at the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Thanks very much for being with us on Keeping Democracy Alive, Eleanor. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Amy Coney Barrett has been confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court as of the last Monday in October. Of course, Mitch McConnell, as you say, blatantly contravened the standard he set in 2016 regarding the president's nomination of Merrick Garland. McConnell gave his word, and as you point out, uh, Connecticut Senator Chris Murphy said, nobody's word means anything in this place anymore. All that matters is raw power. End of quote from Chris Murphy. So we have Republicans with a steady focus on doing anything and everything to enhance their power. Democrats in the Senate are outnumbered. 
not by a lot, but you say Democrats do have power to wield. So in a minority, what power do they have to wield? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think very frequently people assume they're in the minority. There's nothing that they can that they can do. But in reality, the the realities of Senate procedure give them a number of tools to essentially slow business on the floor. That includes things like very simply getting recognized and then speaking at length. It includes objecting to routine consent agreements. So business on the Senate floor continues via these consent agreements until someone objects. And then you have to have some sort of quorum call where you you have to furnish 51 senators to continue. So by requiring that Senate Republicans, for example, continue to produce 51 senators on the floor, that create some delays, especially when senators at this time of year are out of town mm-hmm. um, campaigning on the trail. And so that, as we um, point out, my co-author Jeff Hauser and I point out in the piece, also creates some potentially positive externalities, one could say. There are other things. Oh, please. Well, yeah, I think uh, you make a very good case, and we'll get uh, through that. There's a lot of different things they can do, and and even though Democrats so far have been in the minority in the U.S. Senate, you say, even if Democrats lose, in what ways is it worth taking such risks? Yeah, so I think this is really the key point in the piece. It is not that we argue that by taking these steps, it is guaranteed. And as we see, you know, the nomination went through, Amy Coney Barrett is now on the Supreme Court. That could have happened even if Democrats had fought harder. But the key is that fighting carries a number of benefits. So what's really important with this is to show that the whole process really is illegitimate. They were moving at breakneck pace to get a Supreme Court nominee confirmed with often the explicit intent of having that nominee on the court in case the court needs to decide on election results. Um, They also were pushing aside things like COVID relief um, negotiations. And as you see, actually, Mitch McConnell yesterday after con- they confirmed Barrett, um, immediately adjourned the Senate until after the election. So there's now no hope of mm. relief for the many people that are suffering. But the key thing is that Democrats needed to show that this process was illegitimate. And by doing that, by showing that they were really fighting a process that they viewed as completely unreasonable, Um, and completely contradicting democratic values. They then show people on the ground who are similarly feeling powerless that that the process is illegitimate and build support for for the steps that potentially come next, Um, including things like rebalancing the court. Like rebalancing the court, which some on on the right called packing, but it's really rebalancing. They have had incredible success packing the courts, the federal courts, up and down. A couple of hundred uh, seats, I believe, across the country. 
Now, I have to ask, for the process to have been illegitimate, doesn't a president have a right to uh, send nominations to the U.S. Senate for the Supreme Court? So what was illegitimate about it? People need to understand that. Yes. So I think a really key piece, and as we saw, this, this came out to some degree throughout the process, is that these are lifetime appointments. They are weighty appointments that deserve a great deal of scrutiny and consideration. The Senate, in its rush to put Barrett on the court before the election, completely circumvented that process. As the confirmation process was ongoing, we were learning more and more information about the places where that had paid her for speaking engagements, the opinions that she had given, the speeches that she had given um, to various groups across the country. These are important parts of uh, Supreme Court nominees' background. And rather than really examining those pieces in the rush, they just swept right past them. There are still concerns, um, certainly, about Kavanaugh, um, and that process took longer, about um, sources of payment, potential avenues to influence these um, now Supreme Court justices who have lifetime appointments. And so this isn't just a matter of, you know, people don't like it. Like there are processes in place for a reason that if we accept, and certainly many people are questioning this now, but that these should be lifetime appointments, then those considerations should be given proper weight and proper time. It's amazing to me how these Republicans can use the term conservative for themselves. They are so far off what, they're not conserving anything, and so far off from what America's uh, founders, the people who wrote the Constitution, intended in the process of uh, confirming uh, Supreme Court justices. It's, it's so far off from that. It's, it's just amazing. Now, many, many listeners will remember Michelle Obama, whom I love, I must say, But at the 2016 convention, she said, when they go low, we go high. What about that approach? Was it wrong? And if so, in what ways? How did that play out? Yeah. So I think it it absolutely depends. I mean, you can read that to say that during the 2016 election and since then, Trump has been fond of things like name calling. calling out people in really, you know, ad hominem attacks. Um, And certainly I don't think that we should, you know, that's one way to view that statement. But I also think that a knee-jerk reaction to taking a pass because it's seen as more polite or adhering to norms without sort of questioning what that will actually produce in the real world or thinking about practically why you are taking that route is really a recipe for disaster, in my opinion. So one way to read that is to say Republicans went low by blocking Merrick Garland, and we're going to go high by allowing the president to confirm a nominee. And that, in my opinion, is just blatantly ridiculous. Um, I think it's really important to think about the stakes. you need to consider 
with the power that you have, what action means and what inaction really means. There are limits to this. This isn't a, you know, perfect means justify the end sort of argument. You have Republicans following that to the obvious ends where they are manipulating votes in North Carolina, for instance. Um, But too often what going high means or has meant for Democrats, it seems, is that you forego legal tools that you have. So in arguing, for instance, to slow the Barrett nomination, no one was arguing that Democrats do anything illegal or outside of the the set of tools that were before them. But they were asking, you have these tools, you should actually use them. I don't really see that as as going low. Um, Although, you know, although I think Republicans will inevitably paint it that way. As you were talking about in the lead up to this question, this idea of conserving the institution of the Senate is one that Republicans are already pushing uh, with regards to issues like Supreme Court or like court reform more generally, like, um, removing the filibuster. They claim that they respect the institution of the Senate. And that's blatantly ridiculous. But it is an argument that they're going to make. And there will be some people, some lawmakers, I think, who are liable to fall victim to this idea that they're going low by making these changes. Uh, Good point. You know, if you have tools, you got to get the right tool for the job. And if you don't use them, what's the point of having them? Very good points, I think. And You write that being bold is antithetical to party leadership, that, quote, this course of action goes against the Democratic Party establishment's every instinct, end of quote. Tell us, please, why is the party leadership so timid? Does it all go back? I think a lot of people look back to 1972 when a traditional bold Democrat, George McGovern, lost badly to Nixon, who we thought was right wing. Huh. We ain't seen nothing yet. A race political scientists have determined no Democrat could have won. Please tell us about the party's leadership, party leadership's instincts, how they got there. And what about this uh, reaction to, well, we tried, you know, a, a liberal Democrat and it didn't work. What, how do we get here and, and what has that approach yielded? I won't claim to have any sort of definitive answer. Um, I think that there are probably several things that have contributed to this. I think one piece is that much of the party leadership did come up in a a different political era in many ways. Um, I think that the 1990s where you get people like Nancy Pelosi really um, beginning to you know have formative years in in politics there was this sense that we were moving towards a consensus between the two parties um, that the the time for conflict was over and I think you know there was conflict outside of the party system but within the party or between the two parties I think that there was just this sense that it wasn't necessary anymore. And and that has definitely changed. I mean, for one thing, you have 
the Republican Party over the last couple of decades really moving in an increasingly extreme direction to uh, entrench its power in the face of um, a loss of popular support, realistically. I mean, that's what the Supreme Court gambit is truly about, entrenching minoritarian rule. I think that there's also probably a campaign finance piece to this as well um, in terms of this divergence that is now happening and especially within the Democratic Party. At one point, um, I think that big dollar donations, I mean, we have this rise of big dollar donations over the last um, several decades. Big money becomes an increasingly important part of politics. And that has accelerated certainly after Citizens United, but you also have the rise of smaller, small dollar donations in a new way. And so you have people within the party who really, people like Alexandria Mm Ocasio-Cortez, people like Ilhan Omar, you know, um, you saw this in the primary season, certainly for the Democratic nomination. You have people that don't feel as beholden and are sort of more willing, I think, to be strident um, to critique the establishment, to critique corporations, to critique, you know, so on and so forth. Um, And I think that there's just this sense in which leadership hasn't totally caught up (laughs) um, is what it feels like to me. I think you raise a very good point that, frankly, I hadn't thought of, which is why we do this show, um, that uh, in the 1990s, when the uh, Democratic Leadership Council uh, pushed the party to the corporate right, figuring, well, that's where the money is, we won't have to work as hard to get the money, they didn't foresee the power of the internet coming up, and they they saw they didn't have any uh, awareness that there could be a lot of small uh, small dollar contributions and indeed there have been for bernie sanders it was what $27 and i believe the average contribution for uh, biden now is uh, less than $50 as well so that's yep. a very interesting point that they they came up in a different era very interesting, and yet they still have the power. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Live. It is a group effort, people. Bert Cohen here, and our guest today is uh, Eleanor Egan, Research Assistant at the Revolving Door Project at the Center for Economic and Policy Research. And we're talking about an article she co-wrote, What a Defiant Democratic Party Looks Like. And I think uh, we will see. Uh, that's a very interesting point you make. You say that Underlying this timidity seems to be the misguided belief that voters will reward the party for its restraint, end of quote. It does look like one of the main reasons the party powers were so determined to avoid the nomination of Bernie Sanders this time and the previous time was this belief. Yet the Republicans still call Biden a socialist, which is, of course, absurd. Ask any socialist. As a candidate myself, winning a number of times, I took to heart the admonition that if you're explaining you are losing. And so the vast majority of Trumpists insist Biden is a socialist, so he has to be explaining. As you say, Republicans are eager to label even the most innocuous Democratic action partisan, and the party runs away from that label. The strategy has been in place and used again and again. It hasn't been a total failure, but what has it done to the party base? and potential enthusiasm. Your thoughts on that, Eleanor? Yes. So I think that 
this piece grew out of a lot of thinking that um, I have been doing over the past year and a half around the promises and, and unfulfilled promises of the 116th Congress, specifically the House Democratic majority, as it came to holding Trump accountable. There were a lot of promises when they were on the campaign trail, certainly from um, Nancy Pelosi, that they would use this new majority to act as a check on Trump that had been absent in the first two years of his term. And there were, I think, really high hopes for what that would mean. Most obviously, this was requesting Trump's tax returns, finally. And as we saw with that case, uh, there was just a lot of delay once they actually got into power. So there were all these promises. And then once they had the power to do something about it, there was a lot of reticence, I would say, to hold the sorts of hearings that they needed to be holding, to even when faced with obstruction, continue to be asking for more information to make sure that it was top of the American public's mind that the Trump administration was keeping relevant information that that was relevant to their lives and livelihoods out of public view. I think that this was also really obvious in the impeachment inquiry and the sort of reluctance to impeach President Trump from the beginning, taking lessons perhaps from the impeachment of um, Bill Clinton, perhaps misunderstanding some of the lessons of that impeachment. But what you saw is they really sort of dragged their feet until it felt like they didn't have a choice. Um, and there was this sort of break. They moved into an impeachment on what turned out to be, I mean, an egregious abuse of power, but a fairly narrow and esoteric issue setting aside a lot of the other more blatant abuses of power that Trump had undertaken over the past several years, including things like mismanaging and, and actively blocking funds to Puerto Rico following the hurricane, um, including manipulating regulations to cut more and more people out of the Affordable Care Act to push them off of Obamacare. These are things that had you know, a real uh, impact on people's lives, much more so, I would argue, than the issue in Ukraine. And all of that is to say that I think they passed up opportunities to sort of grab on to the enthusiasm that propelled them into office and instead were pushed into actions that were sometimes um, second best or weren't the best possible action that they could be taking to sort of um, take advantage of that enthusiasm and indeed whip it up some more. So for impeachment, there was this argument that it was unpopular. All these polls showed before they moved forward with it that it was unpopular. And then as soon as the party threw its support behind the impeachment inquiry, um, public support shot up for it because people had some trust that Democratic lawmakers you know, wanted to be doing something um, for them. And so I, I think that uh, there were opportunities to be doing more that they didn't fully take advantage of. Yeah, if people don't see their elected officials working on their behalf, but talking about things that you know, don't come up at the kitchen table, 
how are you going to gin up enthusiasm? It's not all that complicated, I don't think. I want to go back, and it's always important to look at history, I think, and not a big fan of Teddy Roosevelt. However, he did some good things, some terrible things, uh, but he did give a very inspirational and impassioned message. And uh, the, the message I'm going to quote drew huge applause when he gave it in 1910 uh, after being president. He said, and it's somewhat long, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles. And back then, you know, it was men. That's all anybody talked about, unfortunately, but that's what it was. Uh, it, it, or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. But the credit belongs to the man who was actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actively strive to do the deeds, who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. As I say, that speech was a wild success. Of course, we have moved far from Teddy Roosevelt's obsession from manliness, though obviously Trump does desperately try to look manly. It's kind of bizarre, but that's another story. But what of the rest of the content? Does this striving valiantly, daring to take on fierce opponents, even if one fails in the moment, does this no longer have appeal? Is it now unrealistic? What are your thoughts on that? It's certainly true that the Democratic Party has shrunk away from these sorts of good fights worth having, even if you lose. And I think that that is a mistake. I think the reality is we live in a overfull, overburdened uh, media ecosystem. People have many demands on their attention, on their time. If lawmakers aren't making news or demanding space for themselves, then it's very easy to forget that they're doing anything. And so one area in which Democrats have sort of been quietly plodding away (laughs) over the last years is they've been passing all of these pieces of legislation, many of which are um, incredibly admirable, would be uh, excellent additions to our legal code. But ultimately weren't going anywhere. And in many cases, they, the party itself acknowledged that they weren't going anywhere, labeling them from the start as messaging bills. And those just simply aren't going to break through when Trump is creating new scandals day to day, when there are sort of bigger problems that um, are happening. And so the argument, as I see it, is by sort of confronting those those things, the scandals that Trump is um, taking on, you both uh, pull attention to, oh, to yourself and potentially help to set a narrative about what those scandals are really about. They're not just sort of amorphous. In many cases, there is a really um, powerful, I think, overarching narrative of Trump selling out the functions of government to the highest bidder, to friends and benefactors, really retooling government to serve a certain subset. I also think that these fights do set up 
um, victories in the future. And so the Supreme Court fight is one example of that. Um, realistically, I don't think that Democrats uh, fought as hard as they could have on that nomination, but towards the end, they started to use some of these tactics that were discussed in the piece and that others were putting forward to try to gum up the works. And it has uh -huh. produced some sort of defector. <laughs> so uh, independent Angus King mm -hmm. from um, Maine yeah. is now um, yeah, discussing how Republicans have really forced their hand on um, court reform. And so that's really important. I also think that um, some of the stuff that I was speaking about earlier, the potential oversight of the Trump administration, I think that going further on that over the last few years and really trying to create a record of exactly what Trump has done and mm -hmm. how it has hurt regular people and how it will continue to hurt regular people moving forward creates um, the groundwork for a Biden administration, you know, knock on wood, <laughs> um, or the next Congress to really start to undo a lot of that. Right now, it sort of feels like we're still coming to terms with all that Trump has done. And there's still a lot of work in terms of figuring out exactly how we rebuild after this. And I think we could be further along in that. Boy, I, I of course, agree with you. And uh, you make some very good points. For those who may have just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. Our guest today is Eleanor Egan, uh, who has co-written a piece called uh, What a Defiant Democratic Party Looks Like. And, you know, I think you're right that especially here in the 21st century, people are very, very busy. You know, they, they have less and less time. And to focus the impeachment on something that people didn't really get, I don't think they, it didn't matter to them particularly, that particular issue. There could have been perhaps other issues that really affect people in their daily lives. And I can't help but think that that is the way to win. And along these lines, you say that if Democrats want to rally public support, they need to fight like they think they can win. Please, please say more. How would that be projected? What would that look like? Yeah. So um, I think the reality is, is that people don't want to pour energy into fights that feel entirely hopeless. I think that there are exceptions to these rules. Sometimes people really have had enough and will sort of throw themselves into these things. But um, I think people want to have some sense of hope that uh, things actually can improve. And so to go back to the argument that I was making about these messaging bills, um, I think, again, part of the reason why they didn't really gain a lot of traction overall is because even members of the party were acknowledging from the very beginning that they they weren't going to get past McConnell's right. Senate. Right. Um, and and it's just, you know, people are busy and how much they want to pour out um, into the streets or even make calls or whatever it is to support a bill that really has no chance of going anywhere, I think, um, is relatively limited. Um, I think similarly with the Supreme Court fight, it was important that Democrats um, show that they thought that there was at least some chance that they could delay, because again, that is more energizing, I think, 
Um, it also contributes to sort of what we talk about in the piece, setting up for future action. So part of the reason to have the fight is to show we did everything that we could to stop what we considered to be an illegitimate process in, as it was going on. And now they have left us no choice but to take these additional steps, um, court reform. Yes. Um, and I think that by showing that they really believe that they can do something, it makes that claim more credible, the claim that they've done everything that they can and they have no choice. Oh, yes, for sure. And there are clearly, I mean, no question about it. If you look at the how people are registered by party, there are more independents than Democrats, more independents than Republican. Clearly, Democratic leadership sees being perceived as too partisan alienates the middle, the independents. There's long been an argument within Democratic circles as to which is a better approach, being seen as some safe center, perceived safe center, or standing up for something clear. What do we know about what research has shown on this particular question? So I think that the assumption often is that um, independents are sort of perfectly in the middle of the two parties, some mix of the ideological strains evident in both. I think what we actually see is that people are pretty, um, it, they don't have necessarily um, a clear ideology so that you can predict perfectly where they will fall on every, on every issue. I also think that um, the sort of choice between being the middle and being and standing for something is often a false one. Um, an area to sort of point to this um, is as it re regards like taking on corporate power. So one thing that um, my co-author and I ad have advocated a great deal over the last year is for Democrats to not only use their majority in the House to question members of the Trump administration, but also to perform oversight of corporate America. There are no shortage of examples of uh, growing corporations trampling over people's rights, of actively disregarding um, the laws that are meant to govern them. And what we see from a lot of research is this really resonates with people. The fact is, is that corporations are, they do have a growing amount of power over our lives. And many, many people across the ideological spectrum, across the partisan spectrum, reject that. They do, do not like that uh, what they see as an unfair deal. I think you can also see this um, in some recent polling with regards to the composition of um, a potential Biden administration. So uh, Data for Progress did a poll that asked if um, respondents would be more likely to vote, more or less likely to vote for President Biden if he promised not to allow, for example, um, leaders in the oil and gas industry to serve in roles where they would be regulating the oil and gas industry. The questions were also asked for Wall Street, Pharma, um, and some others. 
And they found overwhelmingly that including among independents, people were more likely to vote, said that they would be more likely to vote for Biden if those people were shut out. And so I think that this is really consistent with the idea that you can stake out a really strong position while also bringing in um, independents because there are a lot of issues uniting uh, groups across the ideological spectrum. I I can't help but I, I've long been a believer that populism is a way to go. It can be used by the left or the right. And what you're talking about, the uh, people mistrusting the power of corporations, I think many of those people in 2016 did vote for Trump because he was he was different. He was for shaking things up. And, and the Democratic leadership, it seems, has been like, oh, no, we don't want to alienate them. They have so much money that we need. Well, what about votes? Money is there. To, to, to convince you know to buy the megaphone to communicate the message so that people will vote I I think you're absolutely right that uh, there is a lot more uh, you know real stuff like real kitchen table stuff that people feel like I I don't have control over my government the corporations have control over my government that you know that's cuts across the party lines for sure and in terms yeah. of go ahead well, just to add on to that point, I think it's a really important one, um, especially highlighting that Trump's 2016 campaign was substantive, substantively different in some ways from his 2020 campaign and that he's abandoned some of the sort of populist rhetoric that obviously was sort of a veil at the time. But, a lie. Yeah. <laughs> but I think was, yeah, a lie, yes, but it was there. And, and to go back to the point about um, congressional oversight is uh, one thing in conducting oversight of both uh, corporate America and the Trump administration. There was also, as I see it, a real opportunity to highlight that despite Trump's rhetoric on the campaign trail, his administration, more than almost any other, has been by and for corporate America. Um, these corporations have benefited from lower enforcement under his administration. They've benefited from um, larger contracts, often with fewer strings attached. They've benefited from a lower uh, tax rate. And the list goes really on and on. Yeah. And that, I think, is a really important point to undercut um, this positioning, this posturing that he that he's tried to take on. It, it, is, it is amazing to me how timid they have been with regard to this issue, which bring, I mean, that's the whole, I think one of the main underlying points of this essay is that the timidity doesn't get there. People recognize that, you know, the government is supposed to be there for all of us, not, you know, owned as a, uh, uh, you know, lock, stock and barrel by the corporations as a wholly owned subsidiary. It's supposed to be working for us. There's a lot that can be done with or without a change of president, and knock on the wood for sure. <sighs> Let's hope. Uh, among people who could, who are, uh, who could be targets for action that could connect with people, with average people, uh, there's a few individuals in this administration who I think yeah, there's some possibility of, and, and that you talk about in the essay. We haven't seen much, for example, of Attorney General William Barr for quite a while. He's like disappeared. He's been roundly and severely criticized from within the Justice Department and many lawyers groups. 
What about the prospect of the House, never mind the Senate, the House impeaching him? How powerful a tool might that be? And I, I would think there's a lot of grounds. Eleanor? Yeah, so the, the first point is certainly that there, there is no shortage of grounds on which to impeach him. Some colleagues of mine uh, first called for his impeachment, I believe, back in September of 2019. Um, his tenure in office has been riddled with abuses of power that certainly rise to the level of being impeachable. I think um, many people think that impeachment, because it is unlikely to um, actually go through the Senate for um, impeached people to be convicted, that it's not really worth the exercise. I disagree with that for a couple of reasons. I think that for one, um, reputational damage does matter to some of these people, at least. I think that it matters that Barr certainly has shown himself to be someone who likes to remain a bit under the radar and to sort of pull the strings behind the scenes. (laughs) Uh Um, And I think um, it's important to emphasize that you know, he is a central player in uh, the Trump administration's abuses of power. I also think, again, that airing the case publicly mm-hmm. is a very powerful thing. Um, I think often many lawmakers and, you know, many people in D.C. who follow this very closely tend to assume that people are deeply aware of what is happening yeah in Washington and have a good memory of the abuses of power that have happened over the last um, several years. I don't think that that's always true. A lot of it blurs together. Um, And so there is value in uh, pulling that all together and saying, this is unacceptable. Um, This person should uh, suffer consequences for what they've done. Yeah. And if it really, Um, if what they've done matters to people, then heck yeah. Like, for example, the post office. You know, people get medicines through the post office. You know, it's a lifeline for people. Uh, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, his company very recently was awarded a $5 million contract from the agency he heads. what, What might grounds be for his impeachment, and how do you think the general public would react? Does Democratic caution here make sense? Your thoughts on Postmaster General DeJoy? I think that there are a few different grounds um, to potentially impeach DeJoy on, uh, one of which does have to do with there are still, I think, some pending questions about his financial holdings and his conflicts of interest. Um, Those certainly deserve a great deal more scrutiny. I also think perhaps even more powerfully, um, a recent inspector general report Uh, indicated that before instituting these sweeping changes, there were no analyses done to understand what the impact would be. And what that looks like to me is someone being installed to carry out uh, Trump's agenda, putting it in place without any regard to the, in some cases, life-threatening consequences, Um, not to mention the fact that this puts uh, election integrity um, in question to some degree after some improvement in the on-time delivery rate uh, for mail this summer or, or this fall. It's looking like in the last week before the election, rates are falling once again. And so that 
is certainly concerning. What it comes down to is that he is in a position of public trust. He has certain responsibilities to lead his organization with the public interest in mind, and he has absolutely betrayed that in a very short period of time. He's only been in power for um, a few months, yeah, really. really, and has already, yeah, uh, reached a tremendous amount of damage in that period of time. Boy, that is for sure. It's appalling, really. And every, you know, people love the post office. That's one of the things that uh, people really love yeah. about uh, the government. And, you know, and we have a bit of a health problem right now. It's the COVID-19. Uh, I think that's a lot of people are really concerned about, you know, a quarter million people dying uh, when it could have been, things could have been done. They say they don't, they're not going to control it. They've waited the way. Anyway, their Secretary of Health and Human Services, Alex Azar, relative to health. What can or should the House do about him? Yeah, again, I think that um, impeachment is certainly something to consider here. Um, in making the argument in the piece, we were also thinking about the fact that impeachment uh, creates um, sort of a, a privileged uh, resolution that the Senate has to act on. And so this was a way for the House majority to use their power to, again, gum up the works of the confirmation process. Mm -hmm. But even outside of that, even outside of that additional utility, the fact of the matter is, is that, again, Alex Azar, who, by the way, is a former pharmaceutical industry lobbyist, mm -hmm. has used his position as the Secretary of Health and Human Services to consistently contradict, push aside, um, and completely disregard the advice of um, science experts within the federal government um, in order to downplay the virus um, in the way that the president would like. But what that realistically means is that this administration and Alex Azar specifically is willing to use his position to put American and non-American lives at risk um, by putting out guidance, for instance, that is just inconsistent with the science um, by directly contradicting guidelines to keep workers and um, others safe. So I think that those things should be taken seriously. And I think by doing something like um, impeaching him on those grounds, it signals that Democrats take these abuses of power very seriously. These aren't minor things. These are deep betrayals of public trust, and they should be treated as such. I don't think people like being betrayed. You know, I really think that people people get that when they're betrayed. Like, doesn't my health matter than the profits of the uh, uh, big farmer? They have tremendous power with Republicans, and they're not held in high regard, shall we say, with good reason. No. Um, whether or not Trump wins... There will be months between the election and the inauguration. Uh, there was a lame duck session in 1932 when Herbert Hoover was defeated. And we, it, it, Trump, if he loses, would be a lame duck president that could still do a heck of a lot of damage between now and then. Your thoughts on that uh, interregnum period? It's tremendously concerning, um, no doubt. I think that... Trump administration in some ways is already getting a start on some of these things. Um, we've been examining some um, of the contracts that they've been concluding rather hastily 
Um, they also recently put out an executive order that um, puts civil service protections for many civil servants under threat. Um, I think that we probably will see a ramping up of these things. If I were to guess, uh, things like trying to shovel as much money out the door to friends and benefactors, trying to cover <laughs> their tracks wherever possible. We're also very concerned about issues like uh, Trump administration officials trying to burrow into the civil service so that they can continue to throw wrenches moving forward. There are also certainly concerns about not sharing information with the incoming transition. I think um, vigilance is incredibly important and that those who have power, um, namely the House Democratic majority, should be attentive to these issues. Um, I know that there have been discussions of um, placing or requesting documents to be held to try to disincentivize the destruction of records. I think um, further investigations are certainly warranted and um, demonstrating that someone is watching closely. Well, unfortunately, we've seen that it doesn't disincentivize all (laughs) destructive behavior. Um, I still have some hope that that could uh, ward off some of the, the worst impulses. Um, but I, I do think vigilance is incredibly important. Yeah. yeah, I can just just about hear the whir of the shedding machines if Trump loses all across uh, the bureaus in Washington. Yeah, and I, I think people, it hasn't come up very much, but people care about wars and the topic of military spending and, and America's seeming perpetual wars all over the world. According to the Constitution... Uh, the Constitution made uh, the Congress may declare war. Only Congress. What can Democrats in the House do on this topic to demonstrate leadership and assert power, and maybe do something that uh, connects with people? Yeah. So, I think um, we also in our piece, uh, in a similar vein to impeachment, called for the introduction of War Powers Act express um, disapproval to revoke uh, permission for um, the admin- the country's involvement in any number of active um, engagements throughout the world on the premise, one, that it is another way to, to the process, but that it is also a politically popular fight to take yes. up. And you can see this to some degree. Um, this is actually an area where there has been some degree of um, bipartisan cooperation over the last few years. So in 2018, they moved very close, or they got very close um, to passing a resolution um, to revoke support for the war in Yemen um, with bipartisan approval. I think it, it, yeah, just fell short. But I think what this shows is that, yes, people are certainly sick of excess, just ridiculous military budgets. This is an area where, while Trump has been hacking away at uh, essential services, he has been pouring more and more money into the Department of Defense, including into defense contracting, where, you know, who knows where that money is going and how much of it is actually going to where it's supposed to, supposed to be. And I would think, um, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I, I would think that uh, people need to know they may not be. I mean, there's so much on people's plates and we're so busy that 
you know, Democrats, I would think, need to, yes, do a little bit of explaining as to how much, how the things you care about, Mr. and Mrs. Average American, and to use an old phrase, uh, are being cut because the money is going to uh, military welfare, just a huge, huge uh, unchecked contracts there. And if that can be pointed out, I think people would say, hey, you know, many years ago, there was the $1,000 hammer or something like that, that people did get upset about. We haven't heard much about that. Um, you you write, uh, write that, quote, by throwing off the fear of being labeled partisan and throwing themselves into the fight with all they've got, Democratic lawmakers can capitalize on the outpouring of energy and bolster their elected position in the short term uh, and and in, in over the long term as well. Uh, perhaps, you know, if Democrats take the majority in the Senate, I would think boldness and real action might be expected. Maybe, maybe there are measures that some of the timid ones thought of as radical that may be good for Democrats to embrace now and charge ahead. Any uh, uh, specific examples of, of what may have been seen as radical that uh, you think might be a good idea for them to charge ahead with? Teddy Roosevelt style. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think that there are several things that a lot of groups have been pushing for over the last year. Um, and I certainly am not the first to come up with these, but um, yeah, so the most obvious in this moment would be uh, court reform. That includes expanding the Supreme Court, um, which uh, again is a perfectly legal maneuver that is available Absolutely. to yeah, lawmakers in the majority. But um, it also, it's, it's really important to recognize that it's not just the Supreme Court. Uh, I think a lot of groups have done a great job over the last several years of drawing public attention to the full judiciary system and the way that the Trump administration has been able to take that over with the help of um, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So, um, the size of the judiciary has remained constant for a long time now, despite a growing population. And it's mm. really time that we increase the number of judges throughout the entire system. And mm. uh, in addition, um, as an added benefit of that, fight back against the sort of partisan um, takeover of that system. That sounds like, so, go ahead. Um, I just add uh, the filibuster as well oh, yes. as an important, um, yeah, Tell eliminating the filibuster. Yes. So I think this has sort of been in the ethos for a while. Certainly Harry Reid eliminated the filibuster for nominations, which is something that we're, we're seeing the effects of um, now. But despite that, I think the reality is, is that when you have the ability to do it, um, it is ridiculous to allow our system to be controlled by a, such a small minority. And if Democrats want to actually get anything done in um, if they retake the Senate majority, then the reality is, is that they cannot be beholden to the 60 vote standard. So that will have to be a priority. No, oh, true. And if, if somehow Democrats do take the Senate majority and don't take bold actions, boy, I, I don't even want to think about that, but let's get to the election first. Um, and they're either a majority 
are a minority, the Democrats. They always have a choice between restraint or going into Teddy Roosevelt's arena and fighting. Giving this reality, you say, whether they realize it or not, Democrats' actions now will help dictate the bounds of what is possible in Trump's wake. For the sake of democracy, they must fight like hell. End of quote. Well, for the sake of democracy, say more about that, please, before we uh, just head out. Yes. So I think, again, it is recognizing that both action and inaction have consequences. As my co-author and I argue in the piece, failing to do something is is deeply de-energizing to the base, saying that it's impossible. You know, people put lawmakers in power to act on their behalf. They expect them to do something. And if they fail to use the power that they're given, even when they're in the minority, to do all that they can on behalf of their constituents, on behalf of the country, I think that that really breeds apathy. (laughs) And so um, in order to continue to uh, fight off sort of the worst circumstances and also to build the energy and support that can facilitate greater action, bolder action moving forward, they really need to show that they're doing all that they can. That's the only way that you really get confidence from people to keep putting you in power. Otherwise, it's pretty natural for people to ask, well, what's the point of participating? Absolutely. Fascinating. Thank you so much for being uh, on the show and discussing this. If people are interested in following the work of the Center for Economic and Policy Research, I assume there must be some sort of website? Yes. Um, So www.keeper.com net, And um, our project within that has its own website as well, which is the revolvingdoorproject.org. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. (laughs) 